Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to visit primed.com slash podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Phil is a 63-year-old police officer who comes in to see you for routine follow-up of his hypertension. His blood pressure is well-controlled with lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide, and he has no other significant health problems. He tries to keep his weight under control, and he works out at the gym twice a week. Phil's been making sure he gets at least 10,000 steps a day using his new smartwatch to help monitor his step count. He tells you that he's heard his smartwatch could be used to check for atrial fibrillation, which he has heard can increase his risk of stroke. He asks, what do you think about using a smartwatch to detect atrial fibrillation? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UMass Chan Medical School and Executive Editor of Dynamed. Hi, Alan. Good morning, Frank. Ah, Phil and atrial fibrillation. I am currently wearing one of those smartwatches that can detect atrial fibrillation if I push the right buttons. It's, it's very cool. Um, but before we get into how cool my toy is, what's the risk of stroke in individuals with atrial fibrillation? So the risk of stroke with atrial fibrillation is about four to five times the risk of a similar person without atrial fibrillation. Now, your risk of atrial fibrillation is based on many factors. And that's partly why we have these clinical prediction rules like the CHADS-VASC-2 that look at the key drivers of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. So things like heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, being older, um, women are more likely, a history of stroke or history of vascular disease. So any of those things is going to increase. The more of those factors you have, the higher the risk but whatever that risk is, having atrial fibrillation increases it by about four to five times. Now, we know that about 20% of strokes are directly attributable to atrial fibrillation, but there are th about 30% of strokes are called cryptogenic. We don't know why the person had it. And if you use implantable loop recorders in those patients, about 30% of them will show intermittent atrial fibrillation that you can pick up. So we, we think that silent AFib is a a significant factor in risk of stroke. Okay. Well, serious condition. We're all accustomed to seeing patients with it. What's the evidence for screening for it? So there have been three main trials that have looked at screening for AFib recently. There was one that was published in Circulation in 2017. They had about 1,000 participants over the age of 65 who were getting screened uh, twice weekly. And overall, they found uh, atrial fibrillation, about 4% of the screen group, and about 1% presented with atrial fibrillation uh, just through clinical uh, symptoms. What they found was there was no difference in stroke rates or in mortality based on whether you were screened or not. There were two uh, papers published in Lancet in August of this year. Uh, they were early online. I think they've now been published maybe in the October issues. But in one, some Swedish researchers were having people, and all these screenings involve a single lead 
EKG done electronically. Um, so you're just looking for about 30 seconds of AFib, and people were taught how to do it, and they were screening themselves twice a day for a couple of weeks, and then they either got put on anticoagulants if they found AFib or not. In that case, they were looking at a lot of different outcomes. It was barely significant that there was a reduction in ischemic stroke, and if you adjust your statistics for multiple outcomes, it would not have been uh, significant. It was about a 1% or a little less than a 1% reduction. And then finally, there was this trial called the LOOP trial that got a certain amount of press, came out of Denmark, and what they did was they actually put implantable loop recorders in people and monitored them for AFib, and they followed them for, for up to five years. And they found AFib in about 30% of the people who were had the recorder, and 12% presented with AFib in the control group. And these were people aged 70 to 90, so they're at a much higher risk. higher risk. And what happened was no difference in mortality, no difference in stroke, and so the bottom line is screening detects AFib. It absolutely can, but it doesn't lead to a better outcome, or there's no, there's no convincing evidence that if you screen people, you will um, be able to prevent strokes or death more than just waiting for them to become symptomatic. Okay, so these were two clinical trials, very structured. They were able to have an increased risk of a, increased diagnosis of AFib, but not necessarily any huge clinical benefit. Um, is that, would you assume that that loop trial or the smartwatch trial are going to be generalizable? Do you think, you know, Probably half the people in this room are wearing a smartwatch. They're going to detect a lot more AFib. What should we be doing with that? So the first thing to understand is that all of the screening trials involve people who are at least 65. So if you're not at least 65, forget about it, okay? <laughs> and then the second thing is, you know, we have to think about is disease picked up through screening the same as disease that presents clinically? We treat... Uh, the, the standard teaching is if someone has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, you should treat that the same way as you treat regular atrial fibrillation in terms of whether you're going to put them on aspirin, you're going to anticoagulate them, you know, what their risk of bleeding is and things like that. Just treat it as if it's exactly the same. But screened is different, and I think we, uh, we should be reluctant to just jump on a bandwagon, giving people a label of now you have atrial fibrillation, okay? That's a... That, carries uh, a burden on people. And we, we should be, we should try to avoid overdiagnosis. Um, giving people medical conditions that doesn't help them, you know, giving them a label is something I think we should try and avoid. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So what, what should we tell Phil about his, his cool new watch? Well, Phil is simple because he's 63. So we tell Phil, Phil, it's not, not time yet. When he gets to 65, I think what we should tell him is, you know, yes, it can detect atrial fibrillation. There was that famous Apple Watch study that showed people over 65, it could detect AFib. But as of now, there's no clear benefit to doing so, and you may uh, ultimately result in uh, potential harms from anticoagulation. If you think, you know, in a clinical trial, anticoagulation is very closely monitored, and it's more careful than when you get into the real world where people do all sorts of things and they slip and they fall and they hurt themselves and 
and have bleeds and stuff. And, and I also think all our data about, about initiating anticoagulation are people who are symptomatic. So we have yes. no idea if anticoag, we have would you, what you, the data you just presented at a minimum, but we have no large data set that shows anticoagulating them based upon a screening test is gonna be of benefit. Alan, I, I couldn't agree more. I think this is a great example of overdiagnosis and it leads to overtreatment, and then our, our treatment has a higher morbidity and mortality yeah. than the thing we we're trying to prevent. Alan, can you talk a little bit more about AFib? What are the risks of AFib if you're not anticoagulated? So, if you, well, let's talk about the, I want to try and put it, well, all right. Your risk of having a stroke uh, tends to be about 1% a year, and then it, it's cumulative in that perspective. So, the longer you have it untreated uh, without, you know, anticoagulation, the greater your risk. So, obviously, it's going to vary by how old you are, how much future life expectancy that you have. And then that has to be, of course, balanced by your risk of bleeding under, with anticoagulation. The one thing I'll say is that if you do anticoagulate, it reduces your risk of having a stroke by somewhere between uh, two-thirds and three-quarters. So figure about 75% reduction in your risk of a stroke. Um, so you can still have a stroke. You can be hemorrhagic. It can be uh, ischemic even on anticoagulants because, uh, again, the real world of how people take their medicines and things like that, nothing's perfect. But th that's about the... Uh, the numbers, I think, that might be pertinent to the question. And uh, last question for you, Alan, is what are the reasons to keep someone on warfarin rather than switching them to a DOAC with atrial fibrillation? Yeah, there are probably two reasons <coughs> that I would uh, mention. Number one is cost. Warfarin is still a lot cheaper, and if money is a consideration for your patients, they're gonna to wanna to know that warfarin is still an option. The second is there's a certain number of people where it's don't rock the boat, okay? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so for people who are very comfortable on their warfarin regimen, it's been stable, they've never had any problems, they're used to it, um, they, they may be very comfortable not making a change. And so I think if you have someone who's on warfarin, it's perfectly reasonable to be discussing whether they might want to switch to one of the DOACs, which probably is a little safer in the long run because of you don't have to worry about the issues of the fluctuations of the INR. The other thing had been it orphan was easier to reverse if you needed to for whatever reason, but that, that has evolved where now you can uh, uh, deal with it with the uh, DOACs as well. So. Um. I've had the one medical indication that I've really had for keeping someone on warfarin oh, despite yes. was, was renal insufficiency. And oh, so um, go There is out. another reason, and, um, and this is in evolution, but all of the DOAC trials, or the vast majority, have been in non-valvular AFib. There was a trial recently, earlier this year, in which they showed in valvular AFib, DOACs are just as good. With mechanical valves, though, I think they still prefer to use warfarin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are so many home monitoring systems now that get covered by insurance. So for mm -hmm. those patients who are going to stay on warfarin, it's that much easier for them, too. They don't have to come into the clinic all the time. It's all done remotely, which is wonderful. Yep. Thank you very much. This is great. Practice pointer. Atrial fibrillation detected through screening may not carry the same risk of stroke 
as that of established clinically significant atrial fibrillation. Join us next time when we talk about the symptoms and signs of early menopause. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primed.com slash podcasts and see you next week.